Welcome to another episode of the Scottish Documentary Institute podcast. My name is Jonathan Melville and for this episode we're bringing you a recording of an event we hosted in 2020 with Anthea Harvey. Anthea is an experienced freelance documentary and drama editor who works in TV and film and specialises in narrative, characters and long form. The discussion should be of interest to other film editors or anyone thinking about editing as a career, plus anyone who might find themselves collaborating with an editor. Anthea discussed some of the challenges of working from home and what it's like collaborating remotely, as well as some of the technical and physical aspects of film editing. She also offered some organisational and communication tips. She was in discussion with SGI's director, Noe Mendel. You can also watch a video of the event on our website at scottishdocinstitute.com forward slash masterclasses, where we have a number of other talks and events aimed at documentary filmmakers. You can also find out more about our events at scottishdocinstitute.com forward slash events. We'll be bringing more of our events to our podcast feed in the coming weeks. In the meantime, here's our chat with Anthea. Um, thank you very much. Yes, I'm a documentary editor primarily, and um, I mostly deal in long-form documentaries, human stories, uh, occasionally scientific or art stories. And um, yes, yeah, so I've done quite a lot of work with SDI and work with Noe at the Edinburgh College of Art film department as well and uh yes yeah, so really interesting projects to try and work in on interesting stories um and i enjoy making the story work in the edit and collaborating with um interesting creative people so that's the main reason why i do what i do is that i really enjoy the collaboration um with directors and producers and um Hello, Imma, who I see is participating today. We, she directed um, Vivi Bayando, which was um, one of the um, Bridging the Gap shorts that um, I cut last year. I think it was last summer. Um, so yeah, so that's what I do. And I do work from home and also work in um, post-production facilities or production houses um, in-house. And uh, so I wanted to talk today a little bit about what's different about editing at home and what's the same and the, as, as an edit when you're working in a production facility or in a um, post-production. Mainly because at the moment, I think what's different is that it's you're working on your own and this is a very collaborative process. And so many things are the same about editing anywhere in the world. Um, and working from home has a different challenge, but particularly working on your own, which I think is what the challenge I would find. Um, but you can overcome it, and as we're doing today, you can still collaborate, even though you're actually physically on your own. So I've got a few points that I've had to think about, um, which I can go through, but rather than, I don't want to sort of read out things that I've written down while I was thinking. So if we can get to a more of a discussion, um, that's probably more useful for people because they'll have specific challenges, I think, that they're thinking about. And everyone's in their own different situation. You might be cutting something that you filmed yourself, which is quite an isolated um, procedure at any time. Um, or you might be trying to recreate an edit that you would normally be doing with somebody sitting next to you, which is, which is a tough one. Um, 
But essentially... I, I'm just going to be rude just for a second. Sorry, just say we've got a lot more people have just joined us right, as well. Um, um, so welcome to everybody who's joined us. Also, just to say what I should have said at the beginning, we're definitely, we're going to open this up to questions soon. So if anybody's got some burning questions, the best thing to do really is to put them in the chat section uh, at the bottom. You should hopefully see a little button at the bottom for chat. Feel free to ask some questions in there and then I can put them to Anthea. You're welcome to put them to her yourself, of course, but sometimes it helps just to know who's who's waiting to, to, to be answered. Um, yeah, and then also just to say at the end of this, uh, what we're going to do is try and break everybody into breakout rooms. We did an event a couple of weeks ago um, and we had some feedback from that, which was that it's great to hear and to listen uh, like this, but at the same time, I think, you know, if, you, if you're just listening, you maybe want to, to have a chat to other people and do some networking. And at this time, we all want to maybe speak to more people. So we're going to try and break you out into rooms. It's the first time we've done that. So um, I'm going to sort of just say uh, I'm going to try my best with that. I'm sure it'll work out fine. Um, but uh, we'll go back to Anthea just now. And, um, and I'll try not to, to butt in too much. But oh, that's all right. we'll come back for questions in a wee while. So back to you again, Anthea. All right. Thank you. Um, okay, so what's essentially when you're wanting to um, work on an edit at home, there are several things that are still the same as any edit. Um, essentially, you're, you're still going through the storytelling process, you're bringing your material together, you're uh, wanting to tell your story and create a finished film or get to an end point. Um, you're still got the same team, the same collaborators that you started off with, you've still got your own skills, that you're bringing to the project. Um, you're still working with film, sound and pictures, and you still have a schedule of some kind, you have a deadline, you need to be at a certain point by a certain date. So it's, I think that can give you confidence is that the main part of what you're trying to do is exactly the same. But what is different is the environment that you're in, the space you're working in, probably the technology, the, technology that you have available to you. You might usually be lucky enough to have a fully, fully equipped suite um, with good, really good speakers, really good screens, um, a fast machine, and you might end up working on a laptop in your home, um, which is not ideal always. Um, and obviously the way that you communicate and interact with the other people that you're working with is going to be different. And, um, one of the major things that I find a challenge is the distractions that you have when you're working from home, the demands on your attention from other people or other things, um, and also from yourself and parts of your edit suite falling off. Um, and um, the other thing that's different is the time available to you because you're not going out into a structured space of time that you can really focus on your project. You've probably got other things coming into your um, life. I've, you can probably hear notifications that I should have turned off there. Sorry about that. Um, so what you want to do is to maintain and recreate that edit process that you're used to, but you need to adapt to what's different. And adapting should be not too difficult for all of us. We're all creative people. We can all think of um, alternative ways to work. So, um, I think there are three main things that you'll end up um, concentrating on. One of them is the planning and the preparation um, of your project. Um, you might be having to do that very quickly because of the changing situation that we're in at the moment. 
the way that you're working and the way that you're focusing um, on your edit um, and how you communicate with the people that you're working with. But you can also embrace the advantages of working from home and of which there are many, I think. Um, so I think one of the things that people sometimes neglect when they're um, working on a project from home is really thinking through the process right to the end. And this can be really important if you're having to do something new and quite often you're having to be your own technical support. Um, you don't have somebody in a, in a nearby office that, can, that you can rely on to maybe um, sort some of the technical aspects of the edit um, that you would normally do. And so you can think of this as a, a positive thing because maybe learn a, a skill or an area of the technology that you're not familiar with, you haven't been familiar with before, or it might be that you're thinking about how you deliver your project at the end or you hand over to a sound designer. And normally you don't get involved in that, but in this instance, you can, you can get in touch with your sound designer or your colorist or whatever, have a talk through about what they need and take responsibility for that. Because in the, at the end of the day, you're gonna to need to be capable of handing on your project to the next person who's going to be dealing with it or it might be something you're uploading to a site somewhere and you need to just talk through how your project needs to be set up in order for it to work at that other end and these this is a very it's a quite a boring technical aspect of things but that's actually can make can focus your mind and make you think through the whole of your project from beginning to end which is always a good thing anyway um, so scheduling is important and also you probably want to um, think about some giving yourself some deadlines. So maybe you want to talk to whoever you're working with, your director or your producer or another collaborator and set up some times when you're going to have viewings or you're going to share um, where you're up to so far. And that can give you some good structure within your edit that actually forces you to focus on what you're doing. Um, and it also allows them to feel like they're being in, included because it can really it can feel quite um, alienating to have somebody editing away and cutting your material and you're not with them you're not in the room with them and you feel like you're out of control whereas actually if they are communicating well with you then you feel more involved in that process and obviously it's never the process is always a collaboration so that can be um, a positive and that can also really motivate you um, I, I find a big challenge of working from home is you do have to go and sit in front of your computer and work on this project and there are a hundred other things that you could do you can do the laundry take the dog for a walk have another cup of coffee and actually you do need to go and focus we all know how much of your mind is taken up when you're working on a film and you're, ne you're not going to get your full good work out of your brain if it's only partially concentrating on the job in hand. Um, but we're all a little bit, I think, well, I, I know I'm, I'm gonna just own up anyway, I am, is that I'm, I'm quite apt to sort of skirt around the thinking process and it's like my mind will scatter off into any other area if it can do, if it has an opportunity to. And I'm just sort of looking over there and my windows are quite dirty and I'd quite like to get up right now and clean the windows. And that is not gonna get this particular job done, but it's easier for me to do that. 
Um, so what you can do is to work out some ways that you find productive to make your brain get into that zone of thinking about the creative work you're doing. And then you'll enjoy it. You know, I mean, you wouldn't be doing this, you wouldn't be filmmaking if you didn't enjoy that creative process. But sometimes it takes a little bit of discipline mentally to get yourself into it. Um, and there are little tips and things that you can do to do that. And everybody's different the way their mind works is different. I tend to, if I'm really avoiding or procrastinating with something, even though I know I've got a certain number of hours to get something done, I'll just set a little timer on my phone for 15 minutes. I'll say, I'm just going to do 15 minutes. I'm going to sit down and do 15 minutes. I can do that. No problem. And once you get into it, of course, 10 minutes down the line, you're well into your whatever your, your cut that you're doing, the alarm goes off, you silence it, and that's it, you for two or three hours. You're fine. And it's just a little tip to trick your brain into really focusing. Another thing that you can do is just remember that the edit doesn't happen on the computer. The edit happens in your head. So be kind to yourself. You know, if it's a nice sunny day and it's your, you need to go out for your hours lockdown exercise, you're still working. Your brain, either consciously or subconsciously, will still be working on your edit. You just have to idly let your mind wander and you'll still be cutting in your head and just be aware of that is you're not being lazy you're not avoiding work you're just allowing it to happen in a different way and that can also help you if you if you hit a bit of a wall and you you're not quite sure how to get over a problem or you're just losing a bit of love for the project it's just go and do something else you know that that'll kick start it um, obviously the ideal thing that you want to do in that sort of situation is to collaborate with somebody else and have talk through problems but you know, you've got to be realistic they're not always available when you need them um, and that brings me around to the issue of time which is your time is probably going to be different at the moment the amount of time you've got available and when it's available some people are lucky enough to be able to say right i'm working from home today and i can do nine hours in a go um, I don't know many people who can do that because there's probably something in your home that is demanding your attention. You might have kids that need attention or dogs in my case, um, or just this is the time that you can go out and get your week shopping and so you really need to go and do that. And you can see that as a positive. You can see, well, actually, you know what, now I have the freedom to work whenever I like. I'm going to try and get five hours done today but I'm going to do, I'm great at seven in the morning. I'm going to do, this is not me, by the way. I'm going to do two hours at seven in the morning and then I'm going to do an hour in the middle of the day and then I'm going to go back to it and do three hours in the evening. And you don't have to be, you don't have to beat yourself up about how much you're doing, but just be aware that it, that's freedom, isn't it? Is that work when your brain is in the right place or it might be that the person you're working with only has evenings available in which case, maybe you need to have your collaboration discussions in the evening. Can you work around that? Work out a schedule that works for both of you or two or three of you. Um, and there's actually, that's, I think that's a real positive of uh, working from home is the flexibility and the freedom that you can have. Um, you know, nobody's you're not wasting anybody else's time if you think I've just got to the end now I need a bit of space I'm going to go out for an hour or I'm going to go and sit in the other room or I'm going to watch something on the tv just to sort of 
kickstart my sort of visual imagination. Um, you can just go and do that. It's not, it's not affecting anybody else, which I think is a real positive. Um, I'm just sc scrolling through my notes here, which obviously I'm saying all of these things in a completely different order. Um, so yeah, so there's, there's a freedom of um, how you set yourself up and how you, how you work during the day or the week. Um, I, I've got various thoughts on technical setup and kit, but I think maybe that's probably a better, better to deal with individually and sort of questions because everybody's so different with what they're working with. Um, but I do, I do think you need to set up a really good workspace that means that you can focus on, on what you're doing. Um, and that might mean negotiating with other people in your household, or if you've not got very much space, you, you may not, maybe can't set up a, a dedicated edit space, but you may be able to set up a dedicated edit time. And so you've got your kit available, you just get it out, and then you said, can I have this space for every afternoon, for example? I mean, most of us, I think, will be editing in a bedroom. I'm just, I don't know if you can see that, but this is not a professional edit suite. It is a bedroom, but I've got my desk and, and my, I've got my monitors and everything. But I can't, my husband also uses this space to do his admin, so I have to negotiate my time in this space. And I think that's important. Um, because then you can focus. You don't want to be thinking someone's going to come in to use the printer or, you know, it's just any distraction is going to let your mind just float off. Um, but, you know, it's a challenge. Um, and Thea, yeah. can you talk a little bit about uh, the relationship between editor and director in, uh, <laughs> in the normal context? Um, and how that needs to be changed or compromised or enhanced kind of, you know, now under lockdown. Okay, yes. Um, this is my section three. Uh, so, yeah. So in general, I think, I think a really good editor-director relationship is about the editor reflecting back the project to the director and um, moving it on to the stage where it's communicating with the audience. So you're, it's like a go between between the project and the audience. And so during that process, what I would normally be wanting to do is to give a first um, first response to the footage um, and to challenge, but in a positive way, the original ideas of the, of the, the narrative. Um, but and also be a first audience so that you're saying actually what I see from this is so and so so and so having a, having a relationship I wasn't seeing that it was about this mm. subtext or whatever um, and and then you can work with that and either mold what the original idea was or maybe move the story on to what it has become during the filmmaking process and so this is of usually a process of sitting together watching things or I might watch all the rushes and then have a big hour-long conversation about the rushes um, and this is it's quite often you know you really want to sit in a room and wave your hands around like I am now um, and go back and watch something draw on the wall um, so it's it is 
a really live process. But if you can't be in the room with someone, you do have the opportunity to be face to face like this. Um, but I think you need to work with how you each communicate. You know, are you very visual communicators? Is it easier for you to pace up and down on the phone and not be looking at each other? Um, I think my ideas flow probably better if I'm if I'm walking and talking. Mm -hmm. um, but we are all different, and I think that's something that you can shape yourselves and be open. Say, okay, well, there are no rules now; everything's changed. How do you want to collaborate? Um, and you know, what works for you? How do you communicate best? But I would say that probably the least productive way is going to be. Um, as you go through the edit, you know, doing a cut, uploading it, somebody writing notes and sending them to you. I think that's a very dry way of sharing. Mm. Um, it doesn't allow for conversation. It doesn't allow for um, springing ideas halfway through a sentence and those positive interruptions. Um, and, you know, synergy I suppose it is um, so but it's also a valid way of, of sharing ideas and it's also a quite a safe way if you're feeling unconfident about sharing your ideas putting them down on paper and sending them off is is a um, secure way where you don't if you're feeling um, not that confident about what you're saying that you know it's still valid um, I think one of the one of the opportunities about this isolated way of working is is that safety net is that if you're not feeling if i was feeling like i was um maybe challenging the ideas i i that does sound negative i don't mean it in a negative way but maybe if i was feeling a bit insecure about what i was putting out there as a cut i'm i would welcome this isolation to really work through something until i was comfortable with it and then sharing it so I'm conscious that that's the situation I might be in if I was feeling less confident, but also I'm really conscious that I shouldn't hide in that space and go, well, you know, I'm here on my own. I'm just going to do what I think is right and then sort of send it to you and not talk about it because that's, that's not going to give the best collaboration between the two of you. Um, and that is that is one of the things that keeps coming up when I'm thinking about this working at home situation. And I know you talked about it last week is the the worries and the lack of confidence and the insecurities that you can that we will all be having now the anxiety <laughs> that the situation brings with you and that anxiety is going to feed into your work. And one of the things that I kept I've kept noting down is just be kind to yourself physically don't ask yourself too much um don't try and beat yourself up with working for hours and hours and hours and carrying on till two in the morning because you think you have to it's just pointless be kind to your collaborator remember that they might be you know i might be working with a director who's essentially in charge but you know they've got their own anxieties and they'll be feeling insecure about their project probably it's like what's happening now i've spent all these months or years on a project and and here it is has is it all going to fall apart is anybody ever going to see it i need to be conscious about those anxieties and insecurities of the other people i'm working with and i think you also need to physically be kind to yourself 
um, make sure you take breaks, you know, go outside and get some fresh air um, and try and, you know, try and sit properly, maybe do a bit of yoga or stretching, you know, it's like just, just try and have a positive physical environment because you're, you're essentially having a false environment if you're working in a space that you don't usually work in. Um, just scanning through my collaboration notes. Um, yes, working live, I think, is really important. You can express yourself then and, and feed off each other. Uh, does that explain some of it, Noe? Is that helpful? It does, yeah. I mean, I was kind of thinking also about uh, um, the anxiety that uh, directors have in kind of letting go of an idea. Um, during the moment of edits and yeah. it kind of it always falls on you the editor to uh, to massage that kind of you know letting go feeling um, yeah. and again I was thinking well you know this is going to be a lot harder kind of doing it across screens as opposed to um, you know physically being in the same room and measuring kind of the level of anxiety that the director can have yeah um, I, I, I agree. I think, and I think that's a really big challenge. And it actually, um, it requires the editor to be, um, be quite grown up about it and not be possessive about their own ideas and to, and to recognize the fact that some of the narrative ideas that the directors have, they have, will have held for months or years. And I think it's a way it's about presenting yourself and presenting the way that you've, um, uh, reacted to the rushes or to the project is is if you understand where the director is coming from and what that might have changed into because it will still it still come from the same place that idea but it's maybe created a different result than, than what was expected and I think just being it's how you present yourself and it's a big challenge because when you have a an idea yourself you feel protective of your idea and so you want to um, offer that to the director as the best solution and they think their original idea is the best solution because otherwise they wouldn't have got this far with it so that could be a conflict but I think I'm saying this as though I get this right and I really don't think I do but um, you can what you I think you should try and do is show how the original ideas have changed or there is an opportunity to build on them into what into a different way of telling that story um, and to and to show the joy in that and to show how how great it is the thing that has been created whether or not it was intended and that's the joy of documentary making isn't it i mean do you think the director needs to prepare differently in order to tackle um editing kind of away from the editor <laughs> i think that's a good point actually and maybe you need to be organized in your more organized in your ideas and maybe you because often things are in your head and you haven't had to articulate them because your film is doing that um and you haven't had to articulate them because you can rely on that sitting next to somebody and working through things together and maybe you have to think more about what you were actually intending and why did you shoot this scene why did you go out and do the day at the farm that you shot with these people. Um, at the time you did it because you thought it was part of the story you wanted to follow, but maybe you weren't articulating um, 
what dramatic function that day's shooting had. So I want maybe if you are having to communicate at a different at a distance, you're having to think about that in more detail so that it actually becomes words that you can articulate to another person and communicate. I can see that would be a situation. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And, and understanding how important each of your, everything that you've filmed is now, you know, has it changed? It seemed like the really most important part originally, but you know, reevaluate that yourself. It's like really being honest with yourself about whether it came off the way you wanted it to, for example, or whether other things that have happened since then have, have taken precedence in the story. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. I can see behind you your little kind of post-its. That's <laughs> something that normally we share in the same editing room. <laughs> How do we yeah. share post-its, Anthea? Well, I, there's actually a post-it app, which I've used on oh. the, um, the um, Parkinson's trial films. Um, Jemima, the director, she had a post-its app, which she used to, to use, which obviously I can't remember the name of. But that was quite useful because you could then share, you could share them, obviously. But I think um, I'd be very happy to stand here and do my post-it notes and write on my wall while somebody else was doing that in their, in their home office. Um, and I know there's lots of people that I work with that are very much post-it notes on the wall people. And we've also shared, you know, taken a picture of the wall and sent it to each other. But it's really, for me, it's the process of, standing and writing it as you talk which is is the process so you could easily both be standing there with your own respective walls and writing your own versions up and if anybody hasn't used it before the old um, static whiteboard which is on a roll i don't know where i put my roll now here it is so it comes in a roll um oh this is invaluable for a home edit. About £25 for 25 sheets. <laughs> <laughs> just a whiteboard. It just comes off again. I, um, just to jump in there, we've got a few questions uh, in the chat room, chat section. But I just wanted to ask you very briefly um, if you ever encounter situations where maybe it's expected that you go into an office and you've actually had to or, or try to, uh, to convince people that no, you don't have to go in to work every day in, in Glasgow or Edinburgh or whatever. Has that ever happened? And I ha well, I haven't, I've had that conversation, not actually having to have that conversation, but I've had, you know, I've, um, because I work through in Glasgow a lot and which, you know, adds another three hours onto my day getting there and getting back, which is not necessarily a bad thing. That's thinking time or reading transcripts time. Um, but I think, if you, my main argument would be is that this happens, what, what I'm doing is the same wherever it is. I don't need to be, I don't necessarily need to be sitting next to somebody. And particularly if you're working on a long form documentary, it's gonna take you days to do a cut of any kind, um, or you know, maybe two weeks to do a first cut, and a first assembly. And I find that if I'm sitting next to somebody for that whole time, part of my brain is dealing with communicating with another person. Even if I'm not actually speaking, part of my brain is not 
focusing and I like to just get completely immersed in the cut and so you know I'd rather work just work on my own doing that and so it's irrelevant whether or not somebody else is in the room yeah. um, as anybody who's here who's worked with me knows I do like to just go off into my little shell um, so I would say that it's like it's really important to, when you're in the collaborative stage to be with somebody in a room if you can be um, but it's not necessary so I would make that argument I mean I've, I've cut a, a film with somebody who lives in, and works in Seattle and we you know quite happily got that film together so he was or he did come over for the later stages of the edit but not for the first sort of three months so um you know it's each project is different sure so. great well what i'll do is i'll just um move over to some of the questions if that's okay um and charlie charlie jefferson is um, welcome to 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 pop in and have a chat if he wants to it was just saying um there's a question about pooling music for the edit how much music do you bring to the table or do you mainly take musical direction from the director is it always a collaborative effort Oh, well, it's always collaborative, but of different scales. And I think that's a really personal thing because some directors aren't very comfortable in choosing music, actually. Um, and some people come with a whole sort of soundscape in their head or a composer that they're already collaborating with. Um, so, I mean, I love working with music and I, and I love choosing music, but it's also really good to get a steer um, and that, that might just be having a conversation about um, what sort of tone is this or um, do you feel like the music is a character or, you know, having those sort of conversations. So as, as with everything, it does depend on, on the project. But I also love briefing composers. And if, it's, if I'm working on composed music, I really like to be involved in the briefing because I think there's a whole load of thing that's been things that have been going on in my head while I've been assembling the cut which is to do with music, but I've never said it out loud. So I've not, you know, it's not some, something you necessarily will be saying and discussing, but it's always going on in the background. And so I think it's really valuable to be able to have those conversations with a composer who's also speaking the same language as well as like of the flow and the nuances that you've been thinking about, about how a scene is constructed is how a composer is going to be thinking about their music as well. So I think it's a really close um, conversation there, which is really, really rewarding. Not to say to cut the director out, but it's just that there's ways of describing things which I think come really well from an editor. Yeah. Great. And Ewan Marshall uh, says, thank you for doing the call. Could you tell us about how you pull together and structure a first draft? I know this is vague, but your process interests me. Yeah, um, I, well, my favourite way of working is to watch everything, upload it all into my brain, and then let the story fall out, essentially. And so, and that is just lovely, because then you've, it's almost like you've made the film. And then the hard bit after that is actually making the film. But it's kind of like, okay, I know what the film is. And this is a really sort of, um, not tenuous, I'll think of the word, can't think of the word. Um, but it's, if you, one of the key things I think was working with the director that we were talking about with Noe before, is, is both making the same film. And that's 
that's the best way for me to describe it, which is not very good, is that if I've watched all of the rushes and I know what I think the film is, and then you have a, an amazing conversation with your director where you get really excited about what the film is, one of the best parts of the process when anything is possible. Um, and then you start to be using the same terminology, the same phrases, you talk about the characters, um, and you talk about what the scenes might be and what the shape of the narrative is and you start very quickly to understand what the film is that you're both making and there's this sort of thing in the ether which is the film you're making and as you go through the process during the first assembly um i've always got in the back of my mind yeah but that's not really what this film is or that doesn't really fit in this film and i couldn't say to you what this film is in a sentence but I have a benchmark of what I'm what the film is and I and that's what I would work to through the whole process and um, getting back to a sort of first draft um, usually in a in a sort of narrative documentary the story the rushes will fall into scenes and I would assemble those scenes um, Sometimes, mostly not, they're not structured beforehand. They're not something from a script or something from, you know, it's just from the rushes. And I would just work from the rushes and they would fall into scenes. I would assemble them as scenes and essentially just be looking at them and thinking, what's the best scene that can come out of this particular um, uh, piece of footage? And, you know, the term best is, what does best mean? But it's kind of, what does this want to be? as a scene. So if it's that day you shot at the farm that I've made up in my head, um, it's like I would shoot that as, you know, a day's filming, sort of in start chronologically, but then a shape would start wanting to come out of it. So you might, without even thinking about it, then reverse the order of the chronology of the day because you want this particular moment to happen at the end. And it's just that shape just sort of comes as you, as you cut it together. And that's a, that's a case of not thinking about it too much just cut it together and if you don't know what you're doing go out and have a walk or go and make a cup of tea or visit the bathroom that's a very good thinking space and 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 that scene will come together if you're stuck leave it move on to the next one get all your scenes together and during some somewhere along this process you will have had a really good narrative conversation with the director where you'll have your thing on the wall or your thing on your screen or in a notebook which is about the overall narrative of the film and you'll start with you'll say okay yes that's probably the way it's going to be roughly like that it feels like the party scene should be the final scene so let's you assemble those scenes in that order and then from then on you'll be throwing everything up in the end and changing it but you have to start somewhere so the first assembly is your first scene order that you've discussed Brilliant. And there's also just a comment from uh, Sabine who says a great online post-it tool is uh, Miro or Miro.com, M-I-R-O. Brilliant. You can also use it for brainstorming and sorting ideas. The free version is quite good. Nice. That. Another question from Molly Dennis who says, could you talk a little bit about pace when it comes to documentary films? Are they pre-dictated to you? through music and direction, or does the editor have a say in this? Uh, I think it comes from the editor really, because pace comes from the footage and your scene order, your narrative shape, which is originally gonna come from the editor. Um, 
that is in reaction to the footage that you you've been given but um you can't force pace i think you can you can mold things to work the way you want them to but essentially you want to you there's no point in forcing it if a, if a particular scene is it feels has a natural pace then why fight that if it's too slow in where you are in your film move the scene i would say it's like is i would always i'm quite a purist in that way is that i would want most of the film to have come naturally out of the footage um and you there's two different ways of looking at pace as well is that there's the internal pace of a scene which you know is dictated really about by what's happening or dramatically not necessarily observationally but dramatically in in the scene and then overall the pace of the film itself and that's something that's going to happen when you've got you're in a late rough cut early fine cut and you're looking at it as a whole viewing experience and that's going to come from the editor but in collaboration because if you've used certain pieces of music which have a pace in themselves that music won't have been chosen necessarily in isolation that's in a collaboration with the director and this is where the director editor relationship is re really comes into play because it's moving on from the responses the editor has to the material to bouncing it back to the director who then gives you another fresh perspective um, saying that I really like this bit here but then it really starts to drag and you're getting the editor is then getting more feedback and then they can do a cut which then feeds back to the director so each time the film is improved and I think pacing really comes in there um, because when you're working on on small details and editor the director is giving you that perspective of the whole shape and you probably haven't had time to watch the cut yourself more than once if at all so you're not necessarily going to feel that it's dragging or rushed at any any um spot there unless you've had to, you know the luxury of time great and we have i think a final question at the moment from m oh no another one's popped in mh kayesh who says how do you uh, how do you distinguish between rhythm and pace in any story i think pace is to do with how you are watching the film so it's how the story is moving on and rhythm is a physical thing about beats and about to me rhythm is how what you're watching relates to your heartbeat because the heartbeat is your internal rhythm so that's that's kind of my base note is a heartbeat so if it's fast it's faster than my heartbeat slow so well. um so yeah it's i think rhythm is kind of a practical terminology for internal um beats and pacing is is how you're is a flow thing about story great and again final question now <laughs> pop up is from james Colley, who says uh, do you have any favorite scenes from films that inspire you or you reference when talking about the narrative of a film oh that that is hard <laughs> A because hundreds, B because my memory is absolutely appalling. So um what about any recent films even, you know, as, as well as a favourite one? I um this is a bit obscure because if you weren't at Sheffield last year, you probably wouldn't have seen it. And also I've forgotten the name of the film. But there was a film um basically about a hot spa in Romania 
I'm the worst person to ask about films, I'd say. Someone's no. bound to know it. Maybe they can put it yeah. in the in the chat section. <laughs> well, Emma, I think, might have seen it. I definitely spoke to her about it. Um, and Jan. Um, I don't know. Degreba, Gre Elspeth says. Degreba, does that sound? Well, it was an English translation. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, and that was, it was very slow. And slow paced all the way through. And beautiful um but with quirky moments and i would reference that as um in in edits now is in that's a style that was really successful but very slow um which is how i, I mean i think that's a lovely way to tell stories in a, in a really slow considered way but still get humor in there so nobody falls asleep um i, I will i will look up what the name of that film is <laughs> Sent it to you in case anybody wants to know. Um, but no, you I'm the, spot, the pit. Is that so right? The pit. It was the pit. Oh, thank you. Sales breath. Thank you. It was the pit. It was great. Also, I reference The Matrix quite a lot because that's one of my favourite films. And that's, you know, anything that you want to zip along. If you just imagine the some of the chase scenes in The Matrix. Well, suppose maybe I don't know if this is the same. Maybe this is putting the same question a different way, but are there any films or, or direct or editors work that you recommend to people when they're asking for, you know, to immerse themselves in, or is it just different for everybody because every film's different? Um, well, there's the obvious greats like Walter Murch. Um, and um, I would have to go away and think about that one. Sure. Yeah. I'll throw these questions at you. Um, Noe, uh, who we didn't actually introduce Noe, I'm sure most people know Noe, but Noe's the director of SDI's, she was popping in earlier. Um, Noe, do you have any other sort of questions or...? Well, actually, uh, just looking through the chat list, uh, Liam Martin uh, had one that we skipped. Uh, All right, sorry about that. He's about to, um, coming to you with a ready solid rough cut. You know, how, what's your approach, Anthea? Um, it's not a situation I like to be in particularly because it's, it's really hard to um, unpick. Well, I mean, I'm immediately talking about unpicking it for a start. That's not very good. Um, it's, I mean, obviously it can be a quick way to get to a finished point that you as a director particularly have in mind. It's a very, it's not a very efficient way of working because it's not um, very rewarding for an editor for a start because you're not being able to really interact with the project right from the beginning. Um, so it kind of dampens down any ideas that you have or any creativity that you can offer to it. Um, so I think you, you get less out of an editor and the editor get, is, a, is able to offer less. Um, but that you know, it's still a possible way of working, particularly if you are trying to budget in paying an editor and you can't afford um, that the number of weeks that you would need to pay them. Um, yeah, it's I sort of it's not a particularly happy place to be because so much, as I said before, the edit doesn't happen on on your timeline; it happens in your head. And so, whoever's done that rough cut has got that cut in their brain and it's very difficult to communicate it because all of the many, many decisions that go into each cut have been made, but you can't, I don't know, I don't know how you got to that rough cut. And it would take a long, long time to explain by which time I would have done my own cut anyway. 
So, yeah, controversial. I mean, these days, it's uh, especially, I mean, on um, feature documentaries, it, you know, more and more, you've got two, sometimes three even kind of editors on the, on the film, um, yeah. which means that uh, at some stage, you know, editor number two would have come to some cut from editor number one, and then editor number three would come into cut of, you yeah. know, number two, etc. Um, how I think it depends how you get to that stage. If it's a project where you always intended that, ideally, those editors would have spoken to each other. And so that it's a collaboration between um, those people. If it's because the project has not kept to its original schedule and people aren't available anymore, still those editors communicating from one to the other, um, is where you would want to be. I think the thing is, is that it feels like you'll be able to have a seamless process from one cut to the next, but actually each editor will need to do a certain amount of recutting just in order to get hands on and to really understand the material because you've got to go back. Part of the process of the edit is keeping all of the material in your head so that when you get to the finished fine cutting process, all those wonderful bits that haven't got in there yet suddenly appear in the film. And you can't say why they weren't in yet, but that's just part of the process. So, um, you know, we're not machines. We can't just sort of um, download our, set, our brains into the next editor. So um, I think it's a, there's always going to be a hiccup in time. There's always going to be a lengthening of the process if you don't have one brain on it. But it's, all, it's about communicating, isn't it? And it's, again, it can just be a collaboration. And it's probably easier for work from one editor to to collaborate with the next than it is actually weirdly for the director to pass on that because mm. you'll be talking in the same language. I mean <clears throat> we actually recommend uh, people to have uh, consultant editors on board yeah. especially people doing their own kind of editing. Um, what's your take on it? Anthony? Yeah, that's exactly. I think actually, for, I don't want to do myself out of a job, but actually, if somebody w couldn't afford or the time or the money to work with an editor full time, I would actually rather watch somebody's assembly, spend a few hours talking to them about it and talking about where it could go from there, than watch a rough cut, do the same half a day process or whatever, and then in the fine cut, and maybe get involved at some point in pacing maybe, or something nice, you know, doing a smoothing cut, um, cut or something like that. But really collaborate like that so that you're more, you know, just putting pictures and sound next to each other on a timeline is a technical thing that actually it's quite rewarding for somebody to get involved in themselves. But it's the bouncing off and the collaborating and the discussing other narrative options that is the process where your film is being made. So yeah, exactly. I'd rather be a consultant than somebody who takes on a rough cut, even if it means I don't get as much work. <laughs> it's, so, it's so great to get involved in an edit. And as a director, your next film, if you've never cut anything, your next film would be better if you cut something. I'd, I think you should still work, directors and editors should still work together. I don't think directors should always cut their own stuff, but you should really cut something because everything that you do will be better afterwards. Your, your, your grammar, your, your um, camera work, your, your pre-production, your planning is always better after you've done an edit. Yeah. We've also got a few more questions have popped up, which is great. 
Um, Ewan asks, when editing with archive footage, how does your process differ when selecting footage? Sorry, I'll start that again. When editing with archive footage, how does your process differ when selecting footage to use, knowing that at any point more footage may be discovered and made available? I think the biggest challenge with archive footage is that it's of a, um, it's of a fixed length um, and it's not been created to go in your project. So you're, um, you're really restricted with it. Um, and it's, I, I think it's a good point is that um, with observational documentary particularly, you know that there's no more of that to come because everything's happened. You might go out and shoot something else, but it's essentially that's happened. Whereas with an archive, it's not fixed. There could be something else out there. Um, but I would think that you would probably, um, if you're working with ar archive shots and someone was still researching more archive shots, you would know what they were looking for and you would, you would be saying to them, what doesn't work with this shot is it doesn't have this or this. So you'd know they'd be looking for something that you wanted. So on the one hand, I'd be thinking if something else comes, it'll be better in this place. So um, it will just enhance the film. Or if something else comes, it will be different in this way. In the back of my mind, I've got a contingency plan. I might then take this little bit out from later on in the scene because this new footage will be doing that job for me. So I think you just keep some balls in the air, probably. That, I don't work a lot with archives, so. Uh, Kitty asks, uh, when communicating with a director, do you or they use film art visual references for things like pace, uh, style and story when you're trying to understand what they want the finished film to look like? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the projects I work in generally, um, the style is born out of the film itself. So um, it's it wouldn't necessarily be imposed from outside. So references wouldn't necessarily work in that way. But it might be in the same way with music that director says, what I really love about the way this film is put together is this, this and this. And so we would probably get to the stage of talking about the way that this is on screen is a really sort of um, you know, we talk about emotions probably and about responses. So it might be a film which is the way that it's um, graded, not that I'll be doing the grade, um, gives you a really heightened sense of heat. Um, you know, it's like, it, it's really, you know, it's very hot and passionate or, and we want to get that effect. But I would rather be coming up with our own solutions. Um, taking references from elsewhere seeing what they add to that film and then seeing what applies to our film because the same techniques won't necessarily give the same finished feeling to a different film. So um, I think references are great um, but I wouldn't want to sort of mimic anything. I think it's dangerous if you start saying I want it to be like this because it won't be the same on your film. It's not the same pictures or sound. Um, so yeah, and everyone's different as well. Some people are really inspired by other films and artwork and music um, and some people aren't and it all comes out of their heads. So that's very much part of the designing your own collaboration. Yeah. 
And Inma asks, can you give us top tips to edit a four minute teaser? Uh, Inma, are you doing a four minute teaser at the moment? Um, oh, top tips. I think, yeah. I think, oh yeah, surprise, surprise. Um, I could wave, she's just around the corner. She's like, I can virtually just shout my answer to her. Um, I think, remember who your audience is. Not every teaser is, um, not every teaser is to the same people. It might be to somebody you're trying to get funding from. It might be to your general audience. So think about who's going to be watching it um, and try and distill what the essence of your film is and think about, if it's four minutes, think about five or six points or moments that you want to get into that time. Um, it's a little mini film, but it wants to convey the essence of your longer film, but what you don't want to do is give everything away because then why would you make a longer film if it could be told in four minutes? So it has to be hints and it has to show that the longer film is justified in being longer. That's what I would say. Is that top tips? Um, I'm sure it is, I guess, she says. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not putting it in her words, sadly. I'm sure she's got some <laughs> reflections on this. I can hear the tone uh, of voice. Ah, uh -huh, ton of voices. Is a bit um, we've got a few more questions. If you're okay to to answer a few more, um, what do we have here? When you involve, when you get involved, I think in a new project, do you do any research? How do you start researching? I generally don't research anything until I've got a question in my head because I like to respond to the material completely fresh, so that the the film comes out of the material and then if it's if there's something if I suddenly get really curious about something I'll go and I'll go and find out about it um, it's different if it working in television is different obviously to working in film um, because there's probably a finished product in mind when you're working on a television um, most television projects um, so it might mean that I actually I need to know some medical knowledge or um, or technique or something about the, the main characters um, because otherwise I'm not understanding the full picture so that I would do that kind of research um, but I'm quite um, I'm really a very reactive person so in general I would take my cues from the director producer saying you know the overall story is about this particular um, world if I don't understand the world, I can't really convey the world, but I would probably take the cue from them because they've done all of the pre-production. And if it's a case that it's maybe, I don't know, about some artist or something in the 17th century, I'd probably go and have a bit of a read up about them, but still I want to be able to, um, I can, the audience when they watch the final film can only watch what we put there. So I want to start first with what material we've got to put in front of them and then if we need to add, if there's a, like a major thing which I think has been left out, which is unlikely, let's face it, because other minds have already been through all of that, then I might say, well, how, how about we add this area? Yeah. Okay, and Mariana asks, or yeah, asks, can you expand on the software used to share cuts and get feedback from the director? I'm very simplistic, and so I would probably, um, depending on where we are and how well, how, how good broadband people have right now, 
if we're talking about the situation right now, um, I would quite often, um, if I've got time, I'd be exporting a cut and retransferring it or putting it on Vimeo so that um, if it's a whole cut, um, the director can sit and watch it all in a one with no interruptions, make the notes, whatever, let all their thoughts settle and then we can um, discuss it. But yeah, I mean, we transfer for bigger files. Um, you know, making it as uh, making your export as small as possible without losing your quality. So Vimeo is great for that. Um, there's obviously a lot out there, but um, it so much depends on what you, what is at the other end, what the other person has. Yeah. Okay, and I think the final question we have now is uh, from Burkan, who says, "What is the best way to edit non-English speaking films for you?" Well, I've done a lot of that actually and I've worked in languages like Arabic which I have no knowledge of at all. Um, again it depends on the project but that's a case when um, you can really work closely with the director if they've filmed um, it themselves as they were there and so it's difficult because you want to get the nuances of what's happening in a scene without without um, taking away your ability to respond to it. But if you remember that if you're talking about human interaction, if this is, you know, a, a human story, um, so much of it is not language based. So you get to a level in a scene without even dealing with the language. And actually, that's a really good way to cut a scene if it's a dialogue scene, for example, anyway, is to do it on the emotions. And I know that there's I've heard quite a lot of drama editors talk about cutting a scene with the sound turned off so that they're doing shot reaction shot for example um which works for documentary as well you know it's like get the idea of what's happening so you need to get that by talking to whoever was there um then you can assemble something together just in the emotions and then you need to start layering um the actual language and that would i would ideally have lots of conversations with a native speaker um, but also have a transcript a, a translated transcript um, and the thing that you would most want to discuss with people is any any humor is that because you need to really get to the nitty-gritty of what is humorous in any other language because it's so different from your own language doesn't matter which um, and that's really tricky to do but I think that's a process of refining and refining and refining and really working with a native speaker there ideally if you can. Yeah. Okie dokie. Uh, well we do have, uh, I keep saying that's the last question, what we want to do is just try and do a bit of an experiment and split people up into breakout rooms in the next wee minute or two just to see if this works because people uh, we're asking for it last time uh, but what we'll do is we'll maybe ask this final question just because uh, it seems a shame for Charlie to to keep hanging on um, which was hopefully quite a simple one actually do you prefer to edit with full quality format um, dot wav files or mp3 as a holder for music um I don't, I mean, music files aren't very big, so I don't see any reason not to work with the full quality, particularly because you can lose bass, um, which can take the soul out of music. So I would, I would push for full quality music um, for that reason. Yeah. Because, you know, music, you want to get all the subtleties out of it and really respond to every level of it. And you don't want to get a shock when you go into the dub that it sounds completely different. 
Thanks to Anthea for joining us. We'll be back soon with more episodes of the podcast. You can also sign up for our newsletter at scottishdocinstitute.com forward slash subscribe to hear about the latest news and event details. Mm-hmm.